0: Well, what a complete honor and joy it is to share with you all this evening, although i got to tell you they put me on right after you eat, and uh, that 's not typically a recipe for success so if you want to knock out on me that 's fine um, just don't uh, just don 't be deceitful about it so don 't act like you 're taking notes and <laughs> Just spread out. We got plenty of room on the floors here. Just get you a good one in. So, my kids do it to me every Sunday at church. So, anyways, what a joy it is to be here with you. Although, I got to tell you, I, I'm kind of wishing I was in Houston right now uh, because my youngest kid, yes, Houston, land of Papados. Uh, love me some Papa goes. but anyways, my youngest boy uh, is playing in a national D1 AAU basketball tournament. In fact, they just teed off, uh, not teed off, that's golf. Uh, they just, uh, did a chocolate dude just get that wrong? I just, if there's anything I should have got right, I should have got that right. So hopefully that's not a preview of things to come. Some of you white folks was like, Can I, can I laugh at that? I mean, <laughs> you can laugh at that. Um, so it's a joy to be here. Um, but I do wish I was with him, but we're praying for him. Hey, if you've got your devices or Bibles or if you just want to listen in, I'm going to be hanging out in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. As we look at our time together, always great to run into uh, friends of mine like Dr. Barry Corey, who's the president of Biola, one of the best leaders that I know. Great to share with him. That school impacted me. I graduated from there and am forever indebted to it. And for those of you who played a role in inviting me here, I am extremely grateful. These are Jesus' last remarks prior to the cross. In just a few moments, he will be beaten, betrayed, bound, crucified, buried, resurrected the third day according to the scriptures. It's interesting what he chooses to talk about for his last sermon prior to these events. He's talking about generosity. Listen to what he says. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king, verse 34, will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why, verse 35, I was hungry, you gave me food. See the generosity I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, now listen, this is interesting here, a little side note. Notice how how Jesus uses the term righteous. Um, I, I grew up in the Bible Belt, so I'm not taking a pot shot here. It takes one to know one. but." But the righteous is not just a person who has this amazing consecutive streak of quiet times. The righteous is not that person who sits in their favorite seat with their wonderful Bethmore bobblehead doll right there on the end table. And I love Bethmore. I love Bethmore. Really, I do. But a lot of times we can think of righteousness as this kind of stationary thing where I just kind of. Bible study my way into the kingdom. It's not how Jesus uses it. He equates righteous to people who actually, I love Tim Keller's definition here, disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others. Then the righteous will... Answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Verse 41 is not for the squeamish. And you'll say to those on his left apart from me you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels why i was hungry you gave me no food i was thirsty you gave me no drink i was a stranger you didn't welcome me naked you didn't clothe me sick and in prison you didn't visit me then they also will answer saying lord when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. Now, verse 46 is one of the scariest verses in all the Bible. I can see my little boy when he was about five saying, This freaks me out. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So so get what he's saying here. We're going to unpack it. Jesus posits generosity as not something nice to do. This isn't a nice-to-do thing. Now in America, generosity, this is the Disneyland of the world, it's nice to do. But Jesus actually says in this text, if you're not generous, you go to hell. Yeah, I didn't figure there'd be any, any amens in this crowd. <laughs> not that I was expecting it anyways. I... So we have some theological work to do. Let's pray. Fathers, the old African-American preachers used to say, so now I ask that you would stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. God, it's obvious you've already been at work during this gathering. So Spirit of the living God, would you fall fresh on me and on us? Give us fresh ears to hear. My aim, Lord God, is not to change anybody. I can't even change myself. That's your prerogative. That's your work. All I do is like the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. I just simply want to scatter the seed of your word, and I pray that it would fall on good ground, that it would take root, that your spirit would affirm what needs to be affirmed, challenge what needs to be challenged. Change us, we pray. I need this word today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. On October 27, 1787, a young 25 year old white man sat down and wrote these words in his journal. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. That man's name was William Wilberforce. If you have not drunk deeply from the life of William Wilberforce, I want to encourage you, drink deeply from his life. In fact, one of the most nourishing spiritual disciplines you can ever engage with is is drinking deeply from the lives of of incredibly God-fearing women and men who follow Jesus closely. I don't have time to get into all of... His story, in fact, I see, they have a wonderful clock put on a chocolate preacher at 27 minutes and 12 seconds, 11 seconds, and it's like kryptonite to Superman, but. (laughs) Reminds me of the time I spoke at a Presbyterian church, and I said to the pastor, we were walking in, a wonderful dear white brother says, brother, how how long do I have to preach? He says, oh, dear brother, we are a spirit-filled, spirit-led church. Time means nothing here. You let the Lord use you. But the people leave at 12. (laughs) So we will respect the time. I don't have time to get into all of his story, but... But let's just go back four years prior to that. William Wilberforce at the age of 21, he's at a party with his good friend, William Pitt. Parenthetically, we know William Pitt would go on to become the prime minister of England. But at this point, they're not even politicians, 21 years of age. I don't know if they had too much champagne to drink at this party, but on a whim, they literally turn to each other and say, let's run for parliament. William Wilberforce came from affluence. He came from financial means. And drawing on his vast, abundant financial resources, he runs for parliament and lo and behold, he wins. And he would never lose his seat in parliament some 50 plus years. Fast forward now, four years later, he's 25 years of age and he experiences what what Rosaria Butterfield calls the train wreck of the gospel. God, that great hound of heaven comes into his life and, and totally disorients him in a good way, that causes him to begin to ask questions he never entertained before. It's at this moment where, where God kind of, kind of puts him in a sanctified conundrum in his journey with him. So he begins to say, how can I reconcile my newfound faith in Jesus Christ with my day job and the reality that, 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 that I give leadership to a nation that thrives off of the economic injustice and social evil of slavery? He says, I can't reconcile that. His initial impulse is I've got to quit my post in Parliament. Parliament maybe he had bought that lie that we pastors can can perpetuate that the varsity side of the kingdom is quit your job go to seminary talbot of course on the campus of biola and then <laughs> you become a pastor that's the varsity side but nothing can be further from the truth we need infinite, infinitely times more people who love jesus but are killing it out in the marketplace my job as a pastor, Ephesians 4.11 says, to equip you to do the work of the ministry. I love that verse. I don't have to do the work of the ministry. I just equip you to do it. <laughs> we need infinitely times more people out there than we do in here. It's at this moment, praise God, where Wilberforce is wrestling and he decides before he turns in his resignation to go pay a visit to his mentor, John Newton. John Newton. You know that name, John John Newton, in a sovereign twist of irony, John Newton had spent so many years dabbling in the slave trade himself. He had commandeered a ship called the Greyhound, had sailed down to the West Coast shores of Africa, had beat and bound slaves and packed them under inhumane conditions and sailed them through the Middle Passage and sold them into bondage until one day, I believe it was April 4th, 1748, he's reading Thomas Akempis' classic, The Imitation of Christ, and that great hound of heaven who would years later get to Wilberforce now gets to Newton Newton would eventually leave the trade if you know anything about Newton he struggled with his past and the guilt of it till one day he's with his dear, dear friend William Cowper and he says a beacon of light called grace shone through he gets the pen and dips it in the ink and writes these words amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind now I see, it's that man in October of 1787 that William Wilberforce goes to see. He knocks on his door, he comes in and he shares his conundrum with his mentor. And John Newton would say these words what would, that would change the trajectory of William Wilberforce's life and change the trajectory of world history. He says, it is hoped and believed, young Wilberforce, that the Lord has raised you up for the good of the nation. Translation, John was telling William, you don't have to quit your day job to make a difference for Jesus, that your vocation can become a viable venue by in which you advance the purposes of God. This is a message Christians need to hear today. I get a little disturbed around the springtime of every year when I see well-meaning Christians uh, walking through airport terminals with matching t-shirts, going to, and we shouldn't use this phrase, third world countries, and the cynic in me always wonders, I hope you're not leaving your cul-de-sac to go over there to do what you're not doing on your streets, William Wilberforce says, You don't have to quit your job to make a difference for Jesus. Your mission field can be the House of Parliament. These words strengthen William Wilberforce. A couple months later, Christmas Eve, 1787, he gives a six hour address. No clock on him, no 21 minutes, and 14 seconds, 13 seconds, whatever it may be, six hours. Hey, Amen. I'd love that. In this address he says, my great aim is the abolition of the trade, all others are secondary, and I will not rest until I have effected its cause. No one says anything, they're silent like you. No amens, no preach it, brothers. (laughs) Over the next 20 years, the Odyssey goes on. In fact, if you want to read up on it, read Stephen Tompkins' incredible book, The Clapham Sect. William Wilberforce and his friends, they take slavery on head-on in all kinds of different spheres. They say things like, hey, most of the slaves worked the, the sugar plantations in the West Indies. And what if we gave up sugar, not for dietary reasons, but as our little protest until we take slavery down? William Wilberforce has voted down time and again. He's beaten to within an inch of his life. Finally, in February 1807, England abolishes the trade. At that party, at that that event, there was a party that was thrown and someone didn't like what happened. They were a little snarky with Wilberforce. And they said, hey, now that you've finally gotten what you want, what's next? Without even, without even cracking a smile, Wilberforce says, I will look for something else to abolish. 26 year, years later, 1833, three days before William Wilberforce's death, England already abolishing the trade, now outlaws slavery and the slaves are emancipated. 32 years later, rippling across the Atlantic, 1865, the 13th Amendment is ratified. A little-known slave working the plantations of Asheville, North Carolina, named Peter Loritz, is emancipated, set free. His captors, who had already led him to faith in Jesus, give him 300 acres of land, free and clear. Now, about 150 years later, I'm standing here as a free black man. All because a 25-year-old white man could not relegate his Christianity to church services and Bible studies and status quo. He spent his life not looking at generosity as, as something nice to contemplate, but he disadvantaged himself for the advantage of others, and in the process, he left a legacy. See, as we come to our text, I have no doubt, if we just saw William Wilberforce's life through the lens of Matthew 25, 31 to 46, I have no no doubt, we're gonna see him in heaven, that, that he'll be counted among the sheep. Because he gave his life for the least of these. Matthew 25, 31 to 46 is problematic. It's a theologically disturbing text. I mean, if you just listen to this sermon at face value, if you just read it the way it's written, it sounds as if Jesus is saying, find a poor person, give to them, and you'll get into heaven, which sounds like work salvation. I mean, Jesus just pretty much says, I mean, he just kind of gives the sermon, drops the mic, I'm out. I mean, Jesus would have given this sermon today Inbox full. So let me do something for you that Jesus does not do. Let me, let me explain what he was saying. I used to teach hermeneutics at a Bible college. Hermeneutics is a science and art of biblical interpretation, and The three laws of hermeneutics we used to always joke is context, context, context. The idea here is you never build and base a doctrine of Scripture from one passage of Scripture. Instead, you take your findings from that passage and you correlate it to the whole. One of the things that we understand as we just zoom out and look at the tapestry of Scripture is we are saved by grace through faith and not of works. This is not just a New Testament doctrine. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. In fact, I could take you back to Genesis chapter 15, a verse that Paul quotes repeatedly throughout the New Testament when it says of Abraham that Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. Abraham didn't go to church X amount of times first, didn't go to temple and offer sacrifices. I know those, those things didn't exist. Just track with me. He didn't even stop lying first. In fact, he's not even circumcised when that happens. Genesis 15, he's declared righteous. Genesis 17, he's circumcised, which means even under the Old Testament paradigm, faith precedes works. I could take it to Exodus chapter 12 where God says to the nation of Israel, hey, one more plague coming, the death of the firstborn. This is going to impact you, but here's how you get out of it. Take the blood of a spotless lamb and put it over the doorpost of your homes. And the death angel, when it sees the the blood of the spotless lamb, it will pass over, pass over. That's where we get it from, pass over your home. I love what Dr. Robert Smith Jr., that great homiletician professor at Beeson Divinity School, he says, every New Testament point has an Old Testament picture. This picture foreshadows the the divine New Testament point that all we must do to be saved is by faith apply the blood of the ultimate spotless lamb to the doorpost of our hearts and we shall be saved. That's some shouting stuff right there, boy. I could take you to Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. I love what my friend Matt Chandler says of grace. Grace means you didn't eat your dinner, but you still get dessert. (laughs) Romans 2, 4, it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. It is not our repentance that leads to God's kindness. So we know Jesus is not preaching works salvation. So how do we rightly divide this? It was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great mid-20th century London preacher, who said by far the most harrowing text in all of Scripture is Matthew 7. Here's Jesus. He's reaching the crescendo of the Sermon on the Mount, and he envisions a conversation with religious leaders in which he says to them, I'm sorry, I cannot let you into the kingdom. Shocked, they said, why? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? And Jesus says, yes, but thanks, but no thanks. Depart from me, I never knew you. The great tragedy of hell is hell will have many parking spaces reserved for people who grew up in churches, who served in ministries, served on elder boards, maybe even deacons. For sure, some deacons. Oh, did I? My sense of woundedness there. There will be virgins in hell. Your morality is it does not get you into the kingdom. As my grandmama used to say, not everybody talking about heaven is going. C.S. Lewis has my grandmama's back. He once said in a lecture, he says, you know, when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised on two fronts. One, we'll be surprised at who is there that we knew for sure would not be there. And two, we'll be surprised at who is not there that we knew for sure would be there. Salvation is a mystery. Well, how do I know that I'm sure enough saved? Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, right on the heels of this bad news, he says, You shall recognize them not by their arguments on Facebook, but you shall recognize them by their fruit fruit is a changed and changing lifestyle that cannot be blamed on the normal maturation process of adulthood but can only be blamed on the indwelling, infilling work of the Spirit of God Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 5, do not get drunk with wine, that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That Greek word filled, it means to be filled, to overflowing. In fact, it's the Greek word pleroma. It was used of pregnant women, and not just any old pregnant woman, but a pregnant woman in the last days of her last trimester. I'm talking show enough pregnant. I'm talking can't bend down and tie your shoes pregnant talking so pregnant, can't get comfortable at night. I'm talking so obviously pregnant that even though you just met her for the first time, step to her in courageous confidence and ask her when the baby's due pregnant. (laughs) Because there's no doubt. Paul says, it's as if he's saying be filled. He's saying be third trimestered with the Holy Spirit. May there be no doubt Calls the shots in your life. When that happens, what what does that look like? Galatians chapter five, but the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How do I know that I'm saved? It's not going back to some prayer that I prayed, followed by the dismantling of my vanilla ice cassettes. (laughs) That works here, didn't know if that would work. The way that I know that I'm saved, it's, it's fruit. Every legitimate follower of Jesus should be able to look through the rearview mirror of their journey with Jesus and conclude two things. One, I have not all the way arrived, I'm not perfect. We used to sing a song in my old Baptist church there. I see it now, hot August day. We had no central air. They gave us these wooden sticks with a piece of cardboard stapled to it. It was our fan. It had a picture of Dr. King on one side and a funeral home advertisement on on the other. (laughs) The little boy said, that's appropriate. I feel like I'm about to die. I remember fanning myself, and we would sing a song, old black gospel song, written by James Cleveland. Please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. Everybody should be able to say, while I haven't arrived, we should also be able to say, I am not all the way where I once was. He's changing me. There's fruit. It was Bishop Kenneth Carver Ulmer, that great preacher in Inglewood, California, who happens to be my godfather. He said it one Sunday in front of 13,000 people. I couldn't believe he said it, but I'll share it with you. He said, you know, when I first got saved, I used to cuss at the drop of a hat. But now since following Jesus, I don't cuss that fast anymore. (laughs) He's not condoning cursing, but that's theologically accurate. You cut me off on the freeway and I haven't had my time with the Lord. Not third trimestered with the Spirit. I might want to speak to you in sign language. (laughs) But on the other hand, he's saying, I'm not where I once was. What does all this have to do with generosity? One scholar says that, that our text is not about the root of salvation, how one gets saved. But it is everything to do with the fruit of salvation. Jesus is not saying, find a poor person or write a check to get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not saying, engage the least of these and then you'll be saved. Instead, he's saying the reverse. The way that you know heaven has legitimately gotten into you is you're generous. Yeah, and just read the text if life for you is all about jet skis and another home five dollar cups of coffee several hundred dollars if that's all it is consume, consume, consume Jesus says you don't have a theological leg to stand on that you are legitimately saved Nothing wrong with $5 cups of coffee. Nothing wrong with several hundred-dollar pair of jeans. You won't find any prohibitions in scripture against that. So how do we apply this? If my preaching students were grading me on preaching, I would fail. This is not the way to send a sermon. I got one point. If you were to read through the scripture and every time you saw a verse that said something about the poor, the orphan, the widow, or the immigrant, you would have discovered by the end of reading the scripture that there are over 2,350 verses that talks about God's heart for the poor, the orphan, the widow and the immigrant. It was Wayne Grudem, that great systematic theologian, who said that the Bible fundamentally is a transcript of God's heart. And if there are over 2,350 verses that talk about the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant, and I do nothing for them, I have not God's heart. It was in Leviticus. God is poising his people for entrance into the promised land. The long-awaited sojourn is about to come to an end. And he's setting up their economy. They were to be an agrarian society who were to live off the fruit of the land. He says, when you go to your field, do not glean to the edges of your field. Rather, leave margins in your field for the poor to come and glean. This is God's welfare strategy, and notice how different it is from America's. His system was not a system of enablement. He did not say just give food for the poor to to, to have. He says, no, leave margins. Give them the dignity of work. But it cannot be ignored to tell a farmer not to max out his land, but to leave crops in the field is the equivalent of saying, leave money on the table. By the way, this is how Boaz meets Ruth. Boaz is just following what God says, and he meets a fine sister in the process. I believe the New Testament, New Covenant equivalent, and this couple who shared, I, I, I don't even need to say anything else. They took the rest of my sermon. I believe the New Covenant principle is God is saying to us, when you look at your finances, do not do the typical American thing of get the raise, max out the budget, get the raise, max out the budget, get the raise, max, or go over. He's saying to Brian and Corey and all of us, leave, leave Margin. I took classes at Oxford. If you know anything about Oxford University, you know that it's 38 different colleges. The college I studied at was at Keeble College. I used to love going to Keeble College because across the street from Keeble College is Lincoln. and If you know anything about Lincoln, that's where the great founder of Methodism, John Wesley, went. The age of 19, John Wesley, college student, looked at his finances and asked an interesting question. How much is enough? How much do I need to live off of? John Wesley deduced back in the 1700s, he says, I can live for the year off of 28 pounds. Anything I get over 28 pounds, I will give to the poor. First year, he he makes 30 pounds. Lives off the 28, gives the other two away. John Wesley then says, huh, 28 pounds. Is enough for me I shall do that for the rest of my life one year he made 1,500 pounds mostly through the sale of his books but he lived off the 28 he gave the other 1,472 pounds away John Wesley wrestled with a question many Americans do not even consider It is the question of enough. See, I can't have margin unless I settle that question of enough. How much is enough house? How much are enough shoes? You meddling, preacher, you meddling. how much are enough purses how much are enough golf clubs now don't go legalistic on me we would love to legislate what enough is for me for everyone else and then here i love what tom nelson says christians would have a rather have a rule than to think